Okay, so um, welcome everybody. Welcome those who are joining us online. Today is Palm Sunday. Next Sunday is Easter Sunday, or I prefer to call it Resurrection Sunday. And it's kind of interesting because about a third of the life of Jesus that's recorded in the Gospels takes place between these two events. You know, uh, and, and maybe, maybe we could kind of add maybe three or four days before Palm Sunday. So let's say two weeks, a third of the Gospels is recorded, takes place there. And of course, we call that uh, Holy Week, Semana Santa. But to me, it's not that important, all the traditions associated with this week. And I know every culture has them. To me, it's the message of what happened in those last 10 days before Jesus died. And really the message of Jesus is teaching during this period of his life. In fact, we can find that the heart of the gospel is found in this 10 or 12 day period. It's the, uh, really you could say the heart of the gospel, the heart of the Bible is. And it's some powerful truths here. So for the next two Sundays, and a little bit on our gathering on Good Friday, I want us to look at probably the primary theme of this part of the scriptures. And that is death and resurrection. Let's start with John 12. And by the way, this happened right after Jesus' big entry into Jerusalem. We're not sure if it was Palm Sunday or the day afterwards. We're not sure. But let's kind of jump down to verse 23. And Jesus answered them saying, The hour has come for the Son of God to be glorified. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. He who loves his life loses it. And he who hates his life in this world will keep it to life eternal. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, there my servant will be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. So this was said, you know, these are the words that Jesus kind of was speaking to um, a, a number of people, especially to some of his disciples. And uh, right after he entered into Jerusalem. And I think verse 24 especially sums it up. Truly I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains by itself al alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. And so we see death and then resurrection. And of course, Jesus was speaking about his death and his resurrection but he was also talking about a spiritual principle that applies to all his disciples you know and uh and basically it's uh because because look look in verse um, 26 it says if anyone serves me he must follow me you know in other words if we're going to serve him we have to do what he did he went through that process of death then resurrection so listen to this carefully. Unless there is death, there will be no life. Death 
comes before life. Now, we kind of think in this world, oh, no, you live and then you die. But really, spiritually, it's the other way around. And then it goes on and says, he kind of says it in a different way. If we love our life, we're going to lose it. But if we lose our life, we're going to gain it. And by the way, that's repeated a lot of times by Jesus, isn't it? In various contexts. So this is an important life-changing principle that we want to look at this week and next week. And we're going to look at it on several levels. Okay. Much of the teaching of Jesus points us to what? Eternal life, right? And really, if you think about eternal life in life, real life, is something that everyone in the world, all generations, all cultures, they long for. They seek. You know, they seek for life. People seek joy, contentment for meaning and purpose in their life. They look for love. They look for a sense of worth to really live. And then we want to live as long as we can on this earth because we're not sure what happens on the other side. And so, but we want it with quality of life. And actually, this is what Jesus promised here on earth. Abundant life, didn't he? Joy that is full. Purpose and meaning in life. After all, he says, I am the life. I am the living water. I am the bread of life. In fact, he goes, I am the good shepherd. He, he told and I'm going to take care of you. He says all this. And, and of course, he talks about eternal life with all this. I'm, I'm the living water. And so therefore, if you drink of me, you'll have eternal life. I'm the bread of life. You eat of me, you're going to have eternal life. And of course, the crowds flock to him because of that, his message. Because everyone wants that. But how does one receive eternal life? How does one receive all this abundant joy? This is important, and many people get confused here. Listen, it's not a matter of doing more or doing better, it's a gift. Many people over the centuries have tried to reach God by, by in trying to receive him, by trying to do more and trying to please him more. But you know what? It's impossible. It's a gift. It cannot be earned. We can't do anything to earn God's gift of eternal life. We can't do anything to deserve it. And we all kind of know that, don't we? If we've been walking with the Lord for any, any uh, length of time. Because see, the problem is sin. We are all sinful, right? Now, yeah, I mean, I know people can say, yeah, but that person's a lot more sinful than me. And you know, the, the, uh, you know, in Russia, you know, the leader of Russia, Putin, he's a lot more sinful than me. Well, yeah, yeah, I, I, I get that. But still, compared to God, we all are nothing. Is that right? Yeah. It, it's like stars. You know, I've been told and I've read that you can look out at the sky at night and you can look at a bunch of stars and some stars might be 20 times closer than the star next to it. But the thing is, they're both so far away, they just look like a little dot. And that's the way our righteousness is. That's the way our goodness is. Compared to God, it's eh, just like a little star. It doesn't amount to anything, does it? And so we've got this sin problem. And, and add to that, God is so holy, 
so pure, so loving, that we never can truly have fellowship with him. And actually, because he's a just God, justice demands that all sin be judged. And that's bad news for us. Because we are sinners, right? Sin separates us from God. None of us are an exception to that. Now, of course, God knows this. And because he loves us so much, he provided a way to deal with this son problem. He was going to send Jesus here to earth and Jesus was going to be sacrificed at the cross for all of our sins. Actually, you could put it this way. He was going to take the death penalty that you deserve and that I deserve because that's what we deserve because God is just. He's loving, but he's also just. And and he can be both because he provided a way. He said, I'm going to send my own son down to earth to live on this earth. And at the very end of it, I'm going to let him die and be a sacrifice for your sins. And therefore, your, all your sins will be forgiven. He paid a sacrifice for us. Actually, he paid for this gift of salvation and this eternal life for us and this total forgiveness with a big, big price. First Peter chapter one, verse 18 says, knowing that you were not redeemed or purchased with perishable things like silver and gold from your feudal way of life inherited from your forefathers, but with precious blood as of a lamb unblemished and spotless, the blood of Christ. See, silver and gold wasn't enough to buy our salvation and to take away our sins. The only thing God could come up with that would be just and loving because he knows we can't, we can never deserve it or earn it is if he died at the cross for us. And so he sent Jesus, his son, to do that. And that pays for the gift that he gave us. Now, another important thing that's often overlooked, this is a gift that must be received. And that happens when we recognize that I need a savior. When I recognize that I have a sin problem that can't be overlooked. Because, see, a lot of times people are attracted to the church, the community of God, because, wow, they seem to be joyful. They love one another most of the time. At least they're trying to do that. And, uh, but, uh, and I want to be a part. And so it's easy to kind of just slip in. Well, I'm going to church now. I guess that makes me a Christian. No, there's got to be a place that you come to that says, I am sinful. I need a savior. See, this was the problem with the Pharisees and a lot of the religious leaders of Jesus' day. They just couldn't do that. They couldn't say, I'm sinful. Actually, they had a word for those who were harlots and tax collectors. They said, the sinners, as if they weren't. That's how, that's how bad it was. And they were religious in that they, 
they would pray out loud in the street corners and stuff like this to get attention and to kind of, you know, but really they never would, they never could say, I need a savior. They always thought, I'm okay. I'm fine. Matthew 9. Matthew, who was a tax collector, and he was one of those sinners, uh, came to Jesus and decided to follow him. And, uh, and Jesus, um, you, know, um, you know, Matthew says, I'm going I'm to have a party for you. Jesus, why don't you kind of come and why don't you kind of introduce yourself to everybody? And so who does Matthew know? Mainly other sinners, right? So let's kind of jump down to verse 10. Now it happened that as Jesus was reclining at the table, behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and were dining with Jesus and his disciples. When the Pharisees saw this, the religious leaders, they said to his disciples, why is your teacher eating with tax collectors and sinners? Doesn't he know that he's going to get unclean just being with them? You know? And when Jesus heard this, he said, it is not those who are healthy who need a physician, but those who are sick. See, that was the problem with a lot of people back then. And that's a lot of problem. That's a big problem with a lot of people today. We think we're okay. Oh, yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm not perfect, but I'm a lot better than a lot of people. Maybe most people. But that's not the standard. The standard is how do you measure toward God? Well, that's impossible. I can't. That's the point. We cannot measure up. We are sinful. And so we see in the life of Jesus that the people who were receiving the gift of eternal life were more likely to be people who were being overlooked in society, like fishermen and shepherds, the people down at the bottom of the social level or tax collectors, harlots, those who are demon-possessed, the sick, the poor, a Roman soldier, you know, who was away from home, and he was kind of, he was lonely, and he saw, maybe he saw a lot of the horrors of being in the army. I don't know. But very few were the ones who had their life together. See, here's the point. We must see our need for salvation. We must see our sin there's got to be a death in us before we can receive Paul now he was an example of someone who really had his life together Paul was a Pharisee of the Pharisees he had most of the Old Testament memorized even as a young man everyone said wow Paul actually he was Saul then you know he says this is what we all, all the Jews need to be like, like him. He was, he was, he looked like he had a perfect life. He was very influential. His family pedigree was impeccable. You know, uh, he was, he was, he, he, he had it all together. And yet, let's read what he says after he meets Jesus. Let's look in First Timothy chapter 1 verse 15 it is a trustworthy statement deserving full acceptance what he's really saying listen to this guys that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners and then he says among whom 
I am foremost of all. When he saw Jesus, he thought, oh, no, I'm the most sinful man that's ever lived. That's the way he saw himself. And that's why in verse 16, he says, and yet for that reason, I found mercy that in me as the foremost, the foremost of sinners, Christ, Jesus Christ might demonstrate his perfect patience as an example of those who would believe in him for eternal life. Paul, you know, he had to see how sinful he was. Or how about Isaiah? Isaiah is probably the, um, the um, greatest of all the prophets. He had a message. He's quoted more by Jesus than any other prophet. He's quoted more by the rest of the Old Testament, I mean, New Testament writers. And, uh, but in Isaiah, in chapter 6, he talks about his call. Verse 1. In the year of King Uzziah's death, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne, lofty and exalted, with the train of his robe filling the temple. He had a vision of Jesus, or of the Lord. Jesus, same thing. Seraphim stood before him, having each six wings. With two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called out to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory and the foundations of the threshold trembled at the voice of him who called out while the temple was filling with smoke. How do you like to have a vision of Jesus or, or the Lord like that? I mean, everything's shaking. There's just, and, um, and then look at what Isaiah says. Then I said, woe is me for I am ruined. Because I'm a man of unclean lips. And I live among a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the king, the Lord of hosts. See, Isaiah, he had to come to the place that he sees the Lord. And then he sees, oh, no. Look at my life. Woe is me. I'm ruined. I'm a man of unclean lips. And then a couple of verses later, God says, listen, I want to send you. I want to use you. But that was necessary. He had to almost, he had to have like a death to himself. There's so many stories. How about the story of the serpents back in Numbers 21? We don't have a slide for this, but uh, you know, the people of Israel were grumbling and complaining. Now, they'd done this before. They're always dreaming of all the cucumbers we had in, in uh, Egypt and, you know, in the melons and we want to go back and why is this trip taking us so long? And now I've always kind of thought it's kind of interesting. Grumbling and complaining in our world isn't that big of a sin because all of us do it so much, right? In fact, some people do it all the time. Sometimes people's relationships with others is just based upon grumbling and complaining. In fact, if you were to take out grumbling and complaining, you wouldn't have anything to talk about. <laughs> you, know, you know, but so you're complaining about work. You're playing, complaining about school. You're complaining about the government. You're complaining about, and you know what? Of course you complain. We live in a sinful world. It's all wrong. But he doesn't want us complaining and grumbling. And so God, because they were doing this constantly, he allowed poisonous snakes to serpents to come out and started biting everybody. 
And, uh, and of course, they go to Moses, have mercy on us, have mercy on us. And uh, Moses goes to the Lord, and the Lord tells Moses, okay, this is what I want you to do. I want you to stick up, a, I want you to have a big pole, and at the top of the pole, I want you to have a bronze serpent. And tell everybody, if they look at that serpent, they'll be healed. And, and in some ways you think, oh, wait a minute, that's so simple. But that's the way the gospel is. That's the way salvation is. But, you know, my guess is that for many people, it was easy to justify their grumbling and complaining. Well, Lord, it is true. We are on this hot desert. By the way, some of us, a few weeks ago, were in that hot desert, right about the, right about the place where this was. And it was hot. It was dusty. There wasn't much living there. So I can see how they could kind of complain. And so, but if we justify and say, it's okay to complain, it's okay to grumbling, we're really refusing to see our sinfulness, our lack of our own selfishness. We're not being thankful for what we do have. And so before they could receive healing, they had to look at it. In other words, have we come to that place? Do we see a need for our Savior? Do we see that we have been bitten by sin and that death is right around the corner if we don't do something? See, it was the ones who went and said, okay, I know I'm bitten. I can feel it. Lord, have mercy on me. They would look to that serpent on the pole just like we look to Jesus at the cross and there's healing. If we don't see our need for a Savior, we won't see our need for Jesus. And if you don't see that need, I encourage you, ask God to reveal your sinfulness, your need for him. He'll answer that prayer. And I suspect that some of you who are listening today, either online or here, probably have not come to the place where you've said, woe is me, I am ruined. And if you haven't, ask God to show you. And if you do see that, then you're, you're a perfect candidate to receive God's salvation and his gift of eternal life. And I'd be glad to talk to you, and I know other people would be too. Well, this same principle of death, seeing our need, being desperate, Necessary for salvation. Necessary for receiving the gift of eternal life. It requires death to ourselves. It requires a death to my own good works, my own abilities. I have to come to Jesus by saying, Jesus, I can't do it. I'm a failure. I die. And that makes me a candidate for him to give me new life. And by the way, this same principle applies to every area in our life. See, we're called to bear fruit, aren't we? I mean, that was a major theme that Jesus had to his uh, disciples. But what did he say? John 12, 24 again. Unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it what? Bears much fruit. So how are we going to bear much fruit? By dying. And that's what Jesus said 
a couple chapters later in John 15, he said, when he's talking about abiding in me, he says, a branch cannot bear fruit of itself. When we recognize that we can do nothing, absolutely nothing, to bear fruit, unless he does it through us, then we become a candidate to actually bear fruit and have joy and to be have that abundant life. And we start to experience resurrection in life. Mark 10. This happens right before Jesus enters into Jerusalem. Uh, it takes place in um, Jericho, actually. Bartimaeus is a blind man. And uh, well, let's kind of read Mark 10. And let me get to it real quick. Mark 10, verse 46. Then they came to Jericho. And as he was leaving Jericho with his disciples and a large crowd, a blind beggar named Bartimaeus, the son of Timaeus, was sitting by the road. When he heard that it was Jesus the Nazarene, he began to cry out and say, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Many were sternly telling him to be quiet. But he kept crying out more, Son of David, have mercy on me. And Jesus stopped and said, Call him here. So they called the blind man, saying to him, Take courage, stand up, he's calling for you. Throwing aside his cloak, he jumped up and came to Jesus. And answering him, Jesus said, What do you want me to do for you? And the blind man said to him, Rabboni, I want to regain my sight. And Jesus said to him, go, your faith has made you well. Immediately he regained his sight and began following him on the road. What was he doing? He was saying, son of David, which is another way of saying Messiah, have mercy on me. You know what it means to call for mercy? It basically means I can't do it myself. I need help. That's what he was saying. And what happens? Jesus responds to a prayer like that. Actually, he calls that true faith. Are we at that place that we are saying, Lord, have mercy on me? John 11. I know. You might say, yeah, you're giving a lot of stories. Well, there's so many in the scriptures. I'm not even doing most of them. John 11. Very interesting story. I'll let you read it later. Happens again right before Palm Sunday, the same amount of you know, probably a day or so before. Uh, Jesus and his disciples are out by the Jordan near Jericho. And uh, uh, Mary and Martha, who live in Bethany, have a brother who got sick, real sick. So they send word to Jesus, come, our brother's dying. And Jesus receives word that Lazarus is sick. And then it per the scriptures purposely say, Jesus stayed two days more. Why did he do that? To make sure Lazarus would die. That's exactly right. Because when he finally got there, they said, oh, if you had been here, this is what, this is what Mary said, if you had been here, he wouldn't have died. You know, see, sometimes God delays deliverance in our life. We're crying out for deliverance. He's delaying it to make sure we're really dead. That's what he did with Lazarus, right? And uh, so he goes back to Bethany. And the first thing he tells uh, uh, Martha, I think, 
you know, uh, you know, our brother, you know, our, 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 your friend, our brother Lazarus is dead. And he says, I am the resurrection and the life. And they said, yeah, yeah, we know that. We know that. But a few verses later, he calls Lazarus from the dead. Then they really knew it, right? See, we understand resurrection and life a lot more when there's a death, right? You know, because it gets out of the theory. God wants to bring resurrection and life to every area of our life. But often, he's going to make sure that we got to come to that place of death first. And I'm not talking about literal death. I'm talking about like spiritually. Lord, I'm at the end of myself. I cannot do this anymore. Then we make ourselves a candidate for his resurrection and life. And that's exactly what happened. This is an important principle we, I, we have to learn. Death comes before resurrection and life. John 12, 24, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains by itself alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Another way to say death could be repentance. Repentance comes before life. Or another way to say death could be surrender. We sang a lot about that this morning, didn't we? Surrender comes before resurrection and life. A lot of examples. Maybe the best one is Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. Some of you were there a couple weeks ago. And uh, Jesus, well, let's, let's take a look. Matthew 26. I, I know we're hitting this from a lot of different angles, but this is so important. Verse 39, he's praying there with the disciples there in the garden. And he went a little bit beyond them and fell on his face and prayed, saying, my father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. Yet not as I will, but as you will. Verse 42, several verses later, he went out again a second time and praying, saying, my father, if this cannot pass away unless I drink it, your will be done. See, there's an agony. There's a struggle. There's a lucha going on inside of Jesus. And sometimes that Garden of Gethsemane experience that all of us will go through, it forces us to look at our motivations, to look, am I being selfish? Is my love for God pure? And we've got to come to the place that we say, not my will, your will, Lord. Can we say that? Death or surrender brings us that place. And God's often going to use, lead us to Gethsemane because that's where we wrestle through surrender and absolute obedience. And Jesus, we're told in Hebrews, had to learn obedience. Not so much he had to learn it, but I think he had to prove it, and he did that in the garden. And if we're a follower of Jesus, we're going to do the same thing, aren't we? So the question I'll leave you with, have you been to Gethsemane? Because that's necessary before resurrection. One more story. The story of Jonah. You know the story of Jonah. He was a prophet. God spoke to Jonah and said, listen, I have an assignment for you. Yes, Lord. I'm sort of summarizing it. 
And he says, uh, I want you to go to Nineveh and I want you to preach to, preach to them. That unless they repent, they're going to perish. And Jonah, he didn't like that. No, I don't want to go to Nineveh. And because Nineveh was the most wicked city in the world at that time. Actually, some people said it might be the most wicked city ever. I mean, it was really wicked. He didn't want to go there. And by the way, at the end of Jonah, we know why he didn't want to go there. He was afraid they might repent and he would have to love them. You know? And so he said, I'm not going to do it. So he, uh, he, goes to, he goes to the coast, to the town of Jaffa, and, uh, and he gets on a boat and he takes off the opposite direction from Nineveh. And you know the story, the, the storms come and the, everyone's kind of afraid. They cast lots and, um, and um, you know, Jonah had rejected God's plan for him. He was basically saying, I don't want to do that. I'm not going to do that. And God brings him to a place of death. Surrender, doesn't he? He gets swallowed by a big fish. And while he's there, he had time to think through, and he finally said, okay, I surrender. Jonah, let's, um, let me just, uh, just chapter two. Let me, let me just kind of show you. Verse one in chapter uh, two. Then Jonah prayed to the Lord from God, his God from the stomach of the flesh, and he said, I called out of my distress to the Lord, and he answered me. I called, I cried for help from the depth of Sheol, and he heard my voice. In other words, he was, he decides to call to the Lord. And then verse four, so I said, I've expelled, I've been expelled from your sight. Nevertheless, I will look again toward your holy temple. Water encompassed me to the point of death. He kind of came to the place of death, didn't he? The great deep engulfed me. Weeds were wrapped around my head. I descended to the roots of the mountains. The earth with its bars were, I guess like teeth, were around me forever. But you have brought up my life from the pit, O Lord my God. He was in the pits. He was in the death. He was in the place of despair. And he says, okay, I want to, I, 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 your will, Lord, not mine. And then in verse 9, he says, but I will sacrifice to you with the voice of thanksgiving. He's not going to grumble anymore. He's going to have thanksgiving to which I vowed I will pay. Salvation is from the Lord. And of course, he does go to, Je to Nineveh and Nineveh does repent. <laughs> and he gets all upset about, Lord, I knew this was going to happen. But you can read the book about that. The point for us, Jonah went through death, repentance, surrender and when Jesus surrendered when Jonah surrendered to his will God used Jonah now what's kind of really interesting if you go to Matthew 12 this is going to be the last passage we're going to look at here Matthew 12 starting in verse 38 Then some of the scribes and Pharisees said to him, Teacher, we want to see a sign from you. By the way, a lot of people liked all the good things that Jesus is doing, 
Like, oh, when he kind of did the miracle of the loaves and fishes and multiplied, they said, yeah, we, let's make him king. They liked that. And they kept wanting more signs. We want another sign. We want another sign. So, so verse 39, but he answered and said to them, an evil and adulterous generation craves for a sign, and yet no sign will be given to it but the sign of Jonah the prophet. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the sea monster, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. And then he kind of goes on and says, the men of Nineveh are going to stand up and judge this generation here because they repented. But the sign of Jonah, isn't that kind of interesting? See, the story of Jonah represents the principle of death and resurrection. So beautifully, doesn't it? First of all, what Jesus did for us, he died, he resurrected, what we celebrate this week, but also it represents the process that Jonah, as a follower of God, had to go through of losing his life, coming to a place of surrender in order to receive everything we had. So this week, I want you to encourage, I want to encourage, we're going to talk about the resurrection part. It's more fun to talk about, you know, later this week, next week. But for this week, I want you to remember the sign of Jonah. Think about it every day. Jonah had to come to a complete surrender before God would use him. And remember John 12, 24, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains by itself alone. But if it dies, and we don't like to die, I understand that, it bears much fruit. So next week, we're going to focus more on the beauty of the resurrection. But before we conclude, uh, I was talking to our sister Cece uh, just yesterday, and she was kind of sharing a little bit of her testimony. I thought, that's exactly what I'm talking about tomorrow. So I've asked her to come up. So I think both her and Eric are going to come up and I don't know who's going to do Spanish, who's going to do English, but they're going to go back and forth. And I want you to kind of listen to at least a part of her testimony. So come on up. And for those online, they're coming up right now. <laughs> um, okay, you got, you got them, okay. Blessings to all. It's a pleasure to be here. I remember four years ago I was holding this same Bible. Diciéndole al Señor, ¿por qué es que he pasado tanto tiempo en una iglesia? And I was asking the Lord, why has it been so long, you know, in this church? Y no he entendido realmente lo que es la resurrección y, y la redención y por qué estoy aquí. And, and I haven't really understood and understood what was resurrection and why am I here? Y le dije al Señor, Señor, quiero entender, pero no sé de este Dios que mi mamá me ha hablado. 
And I said, I want to understand you, Lord. And that, that, that God that my mom keeps talking to me about. Y una noche comencé a leer eh, sobre las letras, uh, libros de Pablo, en Romanos 12.2. You know, no os conforméis a este siglo, sino transformaos por medio de la renovación de vuestro entendimiento, para que comprobéis cuál sea la buena voluntad de Dios, agradable y perfecta. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. Y ese día entendí que, que Dios me había llamado a una vida de obediencia. And y that day I understood that God called me to a life of obedience. Realmente pensaba de que debía de obedecerle a Dios para no irme al infierno. Y Dios en ese momento, a través de su palabra, me reveló que no, que era sobre su gracia que debía de amarle. No por, por no irme al infierno, no por condenarme, sino por amarle completamente y por entregarle mi vida. En that day, reading this, I understood that it's, it's not that but not doing things just so I, I don't go to hell but it's his grace you know it's by his grace and that way I can love him and, and honor him y ahora por su por su voluntad vivo y les quiero decir a, a no solo a los jóvenes a los niños a los mayores que que la voluntad de Dios es buena y perfecta que a veces no entendemos and by his will I live now and I want to encourage everybody the, the youngest one the you know the oldest one everybody his will is perfect and I didn't understand that I was supposed to die in order to do God's will y no sabía que tenía que morir verdad para en verdad estar en la voluntad de Dios Pensaba que solo te, debía de salvarme así por así por mi propio trabajo, por lo que yo podía hacer. And I was thinking, I, you know, I, I was going to be safe for the things that I do, the things that I'm, you know, all the time doing. And finally, I thought that I was seeking God, but it was actually God drawing me to Jesus. Amen. Or Jesus drawing me to God. Y finalmente entendí, verdad, que tenía que ser, verdad, a través de Jesús. Tenía que morir. Amén. Amén, amén. Amén. Did you hear what she said? She, she'd been going to church for years. She knew a lot, but she was missing it. Y escucharon, verdad, lo que ella tenía que decir, que ella había ido a la iglesia por muchos años. Pero no había entendido que tenía que morir. Y ese es el caso para muchos de nosotros hoy en día. Pero cuando llegas al lugar donde le dices, Señor, necesito un Salvador, necesito que vengas a mí. 
So we can't be like the religious leaders. They were religious. No podemos ser como los líderes religiosos. Ellos eran religiosos. But they were missing the heart of what Jesus was was inviting us to. Pero se habían perdido lo que Jesús en su corazón, en su mensaje quería decirnos. So I, I want to encourage all of us this week to take a take time to search our souls. Y quiero animarlos a todos esta esta semana que busquen en su alma and ask ourselves are we are we thinking we're Christians because we go to church, we read the Bible, we pray, we sing songs, we get excited in worship. O piensen, ah, yo me siento cristiano porque voy a la iglesia o canto, verdad, o hago alabanza. Or do we know that we have to be saved by his grace? Because we are sinners. O entiendes en verdad que eres salvo por gracia, solamente por la gracia de Dios. So let's we're going to talk a little bit more about this on Friday. I mean just like 10 minutes or so, 15. And then next Sunday we're going to talk about resurrection and the resurrection life that God has for us. Y verdad, vamos a seguir en este tema el próximo domingo, vamos a hablar de la resurrección, el hermoso regalo, verdad, y lo que ha hecho Jesús en su resurrección. But remember, there is no resurrection unless there's death. Pero recuerden, no hay resurrección Jesus went that path for us. Jesús pasó ese camino por nosotros. And his followers, we do the same. Y como seguidores, nosotros tenemos que hacer lo mismo. Amen. Amen. Okay. Uh, we're dismissed, and let's um, remember as we go out from here. Remember the sign of Jonah and John twelve twenty four. Okay. Recuerden la señal de Jonás. And thank you, Sissy, for sharing.